Welcome to Shelter, a podcast looking at housing insecurities in this time of pandemic and the role academic and religious institutions can play in partnering with the community to seek solutions. I'm Diana Molina. And I'm Scott Gurian. This is the second episode in our series from Rutgers University and the New Brunswick Theological Seminary. If you're just tuning in, you might want to go back and start at the beginning for some background on what we're trying to do here and how this project came about. As we mentioned previously, One of our goals is to document this moment in time and create an archive of people's experiences with COVID-19. We're particularly interested in the voices of those at the margins who are already struggling prior to the pandemic and whose existing inequalities have been exacerbated over the past year and a half. We often hear people like politicians, homeless advocates, and representatives of social service organizations speaking on behalf of these individuals. But here at the Shelter Project, We think it's incredibly important for people to be able to tell their own stories the way they want in their own words. So coming up in the second half of this episode, we're going to let them do exactly that. But first, we wanted to explain a bit more why we think it's important to take this approach. And to help with that, let's pick up where we left off last time with Kristen Obrazel-Colfin, our resident historian of houselessness. You'll recall that she directs the undergraduate public history program at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, and has conducted extensive research on the topic of poverty in 19th century America. We asked her why she thought it was important to focus on this topic, and she explained that she has a personal connection. So one of the reasons I got interested in studying the history of homelessness is because my father had been homeless for a while in the 1980s, and he used to tell me stories about how he could make a box of crackers last for a whole week, and how the cops would harass him, and how he would try to find places to sleep under the awnings of businesses and things like that. And I wasn't sure whether those experiences were unique to his own circumstances or if they were representative of how other people were treated. And the older I got, I realized that there clearly was a kind of shared derision or, you know, intentional ignorance of unhoused populations. And so I wanted to know more about it. Kristen's investigation led her to write a book, Vagrants and Vagabonds, Poverty and Mobility in the Early American Republic, And she discovered this deep but largely overlooked history. In the United States, absolutely, since the very beginning, inception of the country, it was criminal to beg, to ask for assistance. And actually, New Jersey's colonial vagrancy statute before statehood, before the revolution, wrote into the piece of legislation that it was assumed that people were lying about how poor they were. So they had punishments built in right away. It was a category of crime that legal scholars call a status crime because a person could be arrested without having actually committed an action if they appeared to be a vagrant, if they fit the description, in other words, in, you know, 21st century parlance of, you know, wearing scrappy clothing, being poor, asking for money or for food or sleeping outdoors, any of those activities could get them arrested. They usually were incarcerated for brief periods of time. In New Jersey, it was about 30 days, Pennsylvania about 30 days, New York 60 days at a time. But many people were arrested over and over and over again because they couldn't exactly suddenly have money and afford a place to rent, especially in periods where unemployment was really high. 
Though the Supreme Court eventually declared vagrancy laws unconstitutional in the 1970s, Christen says the crackdown on poor people continues to this day, with nuisance laws and regulations against things like public camping and loitering still on the books. And throughout it all, we've rarely heard the voices of those most directly affected by these laws. There are very few records that are giving us anything close to a firsthand perspective from people who were experiencing homelessness or houselessness. In many cases, we have a long multiple pages testimony that's been recorded from a person who's been charged with vagrancy or who is currently homeless and looking for assistance that's being written down by a guardian of the poor or one of these other city officials. And so we can try to imagine what their conversation might have been like that leads to this result of what they're willing to share and what they're not willing to share and how they tell their story. Many of the records that we have are mediated through the voices of you know, law enforcement or philanthropists who are not necessarily reliable narrators, which does kind of lead into the one modern question <laughs> about why it's so important for these populations in the present to be narrating their own stories. That's why we here at The Shelter Project wanted to provide a venue for people to speak for themselves. I think that oral histories with populations that are underrepresented are one of the best ways to combat misunderstanding because it allows people to state the case of why they think they are in the situation that they are in, but more importantly, to just share their perspective and document what it has been like to be them and to share what they've been through. So it's vital to have that record, but I also think it's one of the best ways to inculcate solidarity and empathy and to encourage people to see these populations as fully human. And I think that the more we create space for people to share their own stories from these demographics, the more chance we have at shaping solutions that are actually what these communities are looking for. You can see transcripts of several of the oral history interviews we've conducted on our website, shelternj.org. But here in this podcast, we think there's something special about actually hearing someone speak in their own voice. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to play you some of the recordings we've made. In the spring of 2020, as the first wave of coronavirus spread across the region and the state of New Jersey instituted a lockdown, health officials and political leaders from the governor on down urged residents to work remotely, attend classes online, and avoid going out as much as possible. There was that familiar refrain we spoke about last episode that people should stay put and shelter in place. But we were curious to find out what that meant to members of the community from different walks of life for whom the very concept of shelter meant entirely different things. So we handed them recorders and asked them to share their stories. Here's our first storyteller. My name is Dennis Elmore, creator, writer, producer, bass player, and father. How long has it been since I've had permanent housing? I don't even hardly know what that is. I've seemed like I've been on my own for so long, um, ever since I was seven years old. But I would consider the apartment that I had in the Philippines permanent. I was there for about three to four years. I came to be in this situation because I left the Philippines two years ago, and I left my baby girl and her mother there because I couldn't stay there because of um, visa issues. And I came back here to 
find a way to um, help them survive there and try to survive here on my own. A friend let me stay with him for about $500 a month in his living room for about a year until I caught COVID. And I survived it there in the living room. He felt it was time for me to go. And, you know, I can kind of agree. Everybody needs their own space, you know. Somebody's in their living room every day. But I think he was a little kind of um, apprehensive because of uh, me catching COVID and um, it being too close to him and us in the same apartment. After I left my friend, I ended up reuniting with family members who I hadn't seen in about 30 years, and they were in Pennsylvania. I stayed there for about a year, and um, we had a fallout with the family, as we used to do, and they put me out, so I was left in the middle of the street in Pennsylvania. So I decided to come back to New York on the bus and try to survive here. I went from hotel to hotel, with some savings that I put together. And it's very expensive going from hotel to hotel. So I started looking for at least expensive places and found a, a kind of like a halfway house here in Queens. And they're charging $45 to $55 a night. And there's, you know, mold in every place. The ceiling is wide open. And the bathroom is only like, it's not even a bathroom. It's just a, a little cutout with a toilet space in there. Um, you have here a refrigerator and a, um, oh God, that was a roach. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. A small fridge and a microwave here. And then there's a the ceiling that fell out in the bathroom. Um, that's the conditions here. So I got to get out of here also. So I'm looking for an even cheaper place to um, move into and um, go from there. Being here, it's like, to me, a sort of institutionalized situation because you're constantly moving, you know, from room to room or from place to place because either you don't have enough money to go the whole week or the whole month. Is it hard not having my own space? <laughs> Well, I'm myself particularly a wanderer, so space is relative. I don't believe anything is our own, not even our own bodies, but that's philosophical. You're constantly adjusting and readjusting just to try to create the familiarity of stability. And, um, you know, practice makes perfect. If <laughs> you do it a lot, you get used to it. lived in the street many, many times before. You know, even with my um, son, I was a single parent, and um, I raised my son. He's 33 now, I'm 62. And um, at one time, we was homeless, and we was living in the street. And, um, you know, rainy nights, cold nights, different situations. You know, not having a place where you can get up and clean yourself, or wash your clothes, or change your clothes, and have a different way of showing up somewhere, quote unquote, to work. Um, it's difficult not having, you know, the car fare or what you need to get to this particular thing called work. This lifestyle is work in itself. Dennis Elmore lives in New York. 
Thanks so much to his friend Vivian Campbell, a graduate student at New Brunswick Theological Seminary, for connecting us with him. So we've spent the episode so far talking about homelessness, houselessness, and vagrancy, but let's zoom out a bit now to also consider other sorts of living situations that might give new meaning to the phrase shelter in place. Our next story comes from a woman we're calling Zainab. We're not using her real name because she's an asylum seeker who's worried about the safety of her family back in Turkey. As a result of political turmoil in her country, she said that she and her husband had to leave the place they once called home. I was living in Istanbul, and Istanbul is a multicultural city, and there's sea and forests, there's everything. I grown up there, and I love my city. We married while we are student, and because of that, we had an apartment house. We are newly married. And we didn't have too much furniture, but it was ours, you know. There was big windows, a fresh living room, a big bedroom. Yeah, we have a nice tiny house. (laughs) We had everything which we want. But below the surface, there were also problems. You see, we often think of our house as a place of refuge, so whatever's going on out in the world, we could shut the door, draw the curtains, and feel safe and comfortable in our own space. But Zeynep never had the luxury of feeling that way. I liked my apartment, but I was always scared of some things. And I didn't feel secure at that apartment. And because of that, sometimes I remember my memories at this apartment with my family, my big family, and sometimes I miss these memories, not that apartment. So she and her husband fled to the United States. And of course, the first thing they had to do when they got here was find a place to live. It was so hard because when we arrived to New Jersey, we find a room, actually. It's not Airbnb, but like that. And we stayed there uh, three days. It was so cold. And then we find that basement. It's a Turkish people's home, and we stayed their basement. We came to here with $4,000, and we didn't have money. And because of that, after I arrived here, one month later, we started to work. And we worked like uh, six months in a mall. And after that... COVID started and we lost our jobs and we were always at home. And you know what? When COVID started, we were living in a basement. It was cramped and claustrophobic enough spending the pandemic in a tiny basement apartment when it was just Zeynep and her husband. But then her husband's family showed up. They arrived here and they seek asylum like us. And, you know, we can't live in a basement because we were five adults and we had just one room at basement. Then we moved to an apartment and this apartment has big windows too. (laughs) That's very good after a basement. We have a nice apartment now. There is all kind of furniture, a big fridge. A microwave, everything we have, yeah. Do you feel safe in your home now? Yes, 
very safe because I'm not doing anything and police is not going to come to my house to take me. <laughs> That's right. She no longer has to worry about the police barging in and threatening to arrest her so she could finally relax and get a good night's sleep. Zainab says she's incredibly grateful to be sheltered with her loved ones in a place that provides peace, security, and warmth from the cold weather. She's still sharing the place with her in-laws, so it's by no means ideal, but it will do for the time being, while she dreams of the day she and her husband will be able to buy a place they can call their own. I want a big garden with my house because when I have children, I'd like to watch them while they are playing. Or when I have guests, I want to give them a room, a good place. And I want a big kitchen <laughs> because I love cooking. My dream of home is that, yeah. From an asylum seeker looking for shelter from political persecution, we move now to the story of someone who's been riding out the pandemic in a group home. My name is Christopher Dorville. I'm 36 years old. I'm from Somerset, New Jersey. And also, I was born with cerebral palsy and I'm a wheelchair user. My family is very important. And like, even though it's a small group, my mom is the one that always pushes us to keep going forward. And despite all the odds, just keep moving forward and never quit. I'm a second year seminarian, and when I started my seminary career, I was living at home with my mom, and it was just my brother and I and her. But one of the things that happened was that she dropped me one night, and I was on the ground, and she couldn't get me up. So then we knew we had to move into a group home setting. She would always say that my brother and I, we just gonna be in our room like for the rest of our lives. But with me falling, that kind of was a wake up call to just step out on faith and be out in the community and try something different. My home is great. I actually live four minutes away from my mom. But because of the pandemic, we can't really have too many visitors. So even though she's close, she's still kind of far away. The good thing that we've been doing is going on Facebook Messenger and creating a Facebook room Sunday afternoon so like we could see each other. But it's not the same thing because my mom, she comes from South Carolina and like she's a great cook. So that's one of the things that I miss the most, her Southern food, like fried chicken, macaroni and cheese. My mom loved Bob Marley. So like as she cooks, you will probably hear every little thing is gonna be all right. And then you would hear like the grease hitting the pan and the fried chicken kind of stuff. So yeah, it puts a smile on my face when I think about those things and I'm holding on to that. My hope would be to be a pastor and preach the gospel to people, 
particularly those with special needs because people don't really know how to interact with those with special needs. So it's a difficult situation. Like in terms of you don't have enough faith, God didn't heal you and that kind of stuff. So it's those thoughts that I wrestle with as someone who's gonna preach the gospel with a physical disability. I attend First Baptist Church at Lincoln Gardens, and it's a predominantly African-American church. They preach the word of God, but they also mix in the social justice piece and caring for the poor and the oppressed. So I really like that. And also I enjoy the music because I was singing in the choir at that time too. When I'm singing with the choir, it's a freedom there. Like, I'm just praising God. Like, I don't really worry about what's going on. I'm on equal footing with everybody else. So the disability fades away. We would get up in the morning and get ready to go. And then the staff would take the van and drop me off for the service on Sunday. And like for the rest of the afternoon, we would go back to my mom and hang out. So when everything stopped, like visiting my mom and going to church, everything just stopped. Not being able to sing in the choir means like lack of community, being around others. It's like all online, like we use Zoom. I mean, you still get to see people, but for me, I really feed off the interactions with people. It's not the same thing. Now you can watch service at any time, and I like that part of it, so. It's not like a set schedule. But as far as like, I get excited when I'm preaching, like the hooping kind of stuff and like the shouting and everything, you can't really do that on video. So it's just like, I have to stay calm and that's difficult. The toughest part for me being an optimistic person is just being okay with, I'm not gonna smile as much today or like, trying to work so hard to lift other people up. I'm learning that it's okay, you don't have to be happy, like outwardly, but you can still have joy in tough situations. To me, home means independence, comfort, growth, familiarity, and challenges because you never know what's gonna happen, so you just gotta be ready for whatever comes your way. So like seeing the freedom that I have and the opportunity to live on my own, it's a blessing. Even though I was very upset about having to move, it turned out to be a great decision. Christopher Dorval is a student at New Brunswick Theological Seminary. Thanks so much to our colleague, Nathan Jeremy Brink, for helping with that recording. Christopher, Zainab, and our next storyteller were all a part of our team of community reporters who we trained to help gather material for this podcast about shelter during the pandemic. As you've heard, sometimes the most interesting and compelling stories are the ones people have to tell about themselves. 
So my name is John William, and this pandemic has been very interesting for someone like me. I'm a senior in college now, which I feel very fortunate to be because when I was in high school, college wasn't on my radar. It wasn't affordable. It still isn't affordable, but I took out loans and I got grants. And being able to come to college, I've been able to be myself and live as a man, live as myself. So here's the weird thing about living in a studio apartment that you basically don't go outside of except to get your mail, pick up groceries that were delivered to you, go for the occasional walk outside, as long as it's still light out. It's not a home. Now admittedly, I have a very interesting relationship with the term home. I wouldn't say where I grew up was home either. My family life wasn't great. My brother hated me. I think he still does. I don't talk to him any longer. My mother and I got along in good days. She denies mental health, like, as a thing that you might need help with, uh, might need medication for, etc. Which I do. She's also weirdly accepting of different sexualities, but not gender identities. And in 8th grade I realized I was trans. So, you know, the home I grew up in was where I lived, but to me it wasn't home. When I came to college, you know, I lived in a dorm with someone else, so that wasn't really home either. But living on campus, weirdly, felt more like home than living in an apartment entirely alone on George Street in New Brunswick. Well, I don't really live alone because I have a cat, and my cat Nathan and I keep each other sane, I think. We both have pretty bad anxiety, so... You know when they say that, uh... Pet owners look like their pets, well, in my case, pet owner and pet kind of feel the same, I guess, or act the same. We both have anxiety. We both take medication for anxiety. You know, it's me and my cat in a tiny apartment. I mean, if I were to get up and walk, I'm standing on one side of my apartment right now. And now I'm at the door. I just walked across my entire apartment. And it wasn't a quick walk, it was an average pace walk for a five-foot-four man. And, you know, another thing about living in a studio, because it was the only apartment you could afford, is you don't really feel like you have any privacy. When they come to do apartment inspections, these are people I don't know, making sure my apartment's clean and whatnot, coming into my bedroom, essentially, which is also my kitchen, but this is where I sleep. Honestly, it feels like a hotel room. It's not permanent. I didn't move in thinking it would be permanent. And there's no way to personalize it enough to feel permanent. Sure, I have decor, decorations. I took stuff, you know, that I had brought to my dorm room previously and put it around. But it's barren at the same time. And it's sterile in a weird way. So it's just this weird existence. And I feel like I need to just sit here in silence and think about it a bit again. It's not really silence, though. There is very poor insulation in the window. I can always hear the sirens and the cars and occasionally the people outside of the 7-Eleven yelling at each other. I hear the bus every time it stops because it sounds different from other cars. 
that's not the kind of background noise I enjoy. It just contributes more to the feeling of not belonging. It's interesting, even though I live in an apartment, I barely see other people. And this is like a an 11 or 12 floor building. There's got to be other people living here. Obviously, I hear them, but I've never seen them. The thing about not going outside is you really lose track of time. I feed my cat every day. I get up at 9am and take my antidepressants every day. Every Wednesday I do my testosterone, but those all blend together and I couldn't tell you if Wednesday was a day ago or two weeks ago, but then at the same time I have this overbearing awareness of the date because as the month comes up to an end, I have to make sure I have the money for rent and for utilities and for the phone bill. It's just kind of this strange liminal space that I feel that I live in now during the pandemic because time is both meaningless and more stressful and meaningful than ever. And I don't know if other people feel like that, but that is the overarching theme to my pandemic life. The fact that time is real and is not real at the same time. Next time on the podcast, we'll hear another perspective on shelter in place from people who've recently been released from incarceration. For the housing aspect of it, I think a lot of people can lose hope. You kind of have a level of despair, thinking that things can't get better. And um, there are outlets and places out there that can help, but you have to ask for it. You know, they're not going to come looking for you. Shelter is co-produced by the Rutgers University New Brunswick's Public History Program, the Rutgers Center for Cultural Analysis, the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, and Collab Arts. Our editorial team includes Dan Swern, Colin Yeager, Nathan Jeremy Brink, and Kristen obrazel Colfin. We had production help from Allah Gitan, and our theme music was created by Dave Seaman and Carlos Vasquez. This series is made with the generous support of the Henry Luce Foundation. As we said last time, this podcast is just one element of the larger Shelter Project. We've also commissioned a diverse group of performance and visual artists to create original work in response to the housing crisis. You can learn more by visiting our website at shelternj.org. Remember to follow or subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date. And if you like what you hear, please spread the word on social media or tell a friend. Until next time, I'm Diana Molina. And I'm Scott Gurian. Thanks for listening.